0: Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. <clears throat> Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetics industry. This is episode 212. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is the most bug bitten broadcaster in beauty, Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hey,
1: Valerie, I'm still itching these. I was in the, uh, in the Caribbean, and I got bit by a bunch of sandflies and there's like 100 bites. But how oh, oh are you doing? You, you had the week off last week because of an illness.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't have a vacation uh, necessarily like you did, but I had the flu and bronchitis. Not what? fun at all.
1: Now, are you sure it was the flu, or was it this new famous virus?
0: Well, they didn't test for that because I hadn't been traveling, but I did let them know my boss had been traveling. He got the flu allegedly and I got it from him and uh, they just don't have enough testing kits. And they actually said I would have to leave the hospital and go to L.A. County uh, to get that testing done. And I was like, yeah, I think it's the flu. So anyway, Uh, I'm, I'm doing much better.
1: Well, that's good. Good to hear. I I hope you can't spread anything through the microphones here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good thing sometimes there's location between us.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of that famous virus, we are going to talk about it a little bit on the show uh, in our Beauty Science News. uh, And then we'll answer a lot of beauty questions today, including what are the best facial moisturizers for sensitive skin? Is there a big difference between facial cleansers and shampoo? Will castor oil help your hair grow? And, how does someone become a cosmetic chemist? Are you ready?
1: I am ready. Uh, So, are we going to dive into the subject that everyone's talking about?
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. So, I don't think anyone can turn on a news channel without hearing about the coronavirus.
1: It seems to be everywhere. Uh, even my wife says everybody at her company's talking about it, and uh, you know all the people contacting me. Uh, like this virus is really taking over a lot of a lot yeah. of bandwidth, huh?
0: And you can't even turn on a single beauty news channel without hearing about the coronavirus. And I I do want to mention this article I saw in Cosmetics Business News, um, because it does talk about just. In general what the outlook is on the industry because the beauty industry is a multi-billion dollar industry and this virus is having a huge financial impact on it more so than just impacting the stock market
1: you, you would think on some level you know here you, you hear people buying up like hand sanitizers and cleansers and things so on some level it's going to help in some areas i suppose i mean help i mean it's just <laughs> i suppose people aren't going to use extra right I, and I, I don't really know <laughs> It's hard to predict the future.
0: Well, there's a couple things going on. So, first of all, a lot of the supply chain within the cosmetics industry comes from overseas in Asia, and that is pretty much on lockdown. Not only are factories partially back to work, if they're even to work at all, uh, we're going to continue to see packaging delays uh, with packaging coming from China. And of course, a lot of raw materials are created in China, especially raw materials for fragrances and hair colorants. So we're going to continue to see delays on raw materials in that way, just because uh, people aren't back at work yet.
1: Yeah, that's really amazing that this this could have that much of an effect, but it really is.
0: Oh, yeah. L'Oreal has even said in this article, of course, that their in-store footprint has slowed down, but surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, their e-commerce is still thriving as people are looking to online to buy their products instead of going to crowded places like malls and stuff like that.
1: And, yeah, with the... the the way that, at least in the United States here, with the way that the government is handling it, I I only see them becoming more restrictive. And there's already a suggestion that you avoid crowds, I guess. So
0: yeah, in fact, a lot of our trade shows have been postponed or canceled.
1: Yeah, that's a little, that's a little unnerving, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But I guess you don't want big you don't want big crowds of people around. That's just a way to spread viruses.
0: Yeah, especially with the coronavirus outbreak happening happening in Italy. Uh, the Italian business industry is huge in cosmetics. They have tons of manufacturing facilities there. And they're a huge spectator at an event called In Cosmetics Global, which is an ingredient trade show in Europe. And so that show actually was just postponed a few days ago. They were like, no, we're still going to have it. And then Friday they were like, yeah, we need to cancel. It. It's just not going to happen. So uh, that was disappointing because surprisingly for me, the travel agencies are not as understanding about the coronavirus. And I actually, my company had to eat the hotel
2: uh, oh, that wow. I had
0: booked. Yeah, they were they were not forgiving about that at all, which I was a little surprised about. But uh, oh, well, I'll hopefully go back in June. Hopefully the show's still on in June.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, those, the hotels are probably looking to take a big hit with all this travel. People not, are not traveling, you know, that's not the hotel I
0: booked. <laughs> they got oh, my money. Uh, there you go. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's just interesting. Uh, another area that we don't think about, I have a friend who works for a large corporation and they sell lipstick and they're predicting a shortfall to the tune of, multi millions of dollars in lipstick sales guess why
1: uh well uh i don't know hard time getting the ingredients
0: no people are wearing face masks and they're going to use less lipstick and if you're using less you're consuming less therefore you're buying less so just in in less repeat purchases they're predicting that they're going to have a shortage in their business pretty interesting huh
1: yeah, who who even thought of that? Jeez.
0: Yeah, not me. Anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, so this this is really a uh, uh this this virus is really affecting the beauty bottom line. You know what else? I saw I got contacted by a couple of reporters because everyone's asking about this hand sanitizer this homemade hand sanitizer have you seen this
0: oh yeah i've seen a lot of people posting their own recipes mostly with tito's vodka and tito's is saying no you can't do that we only have 40 percent alcohol don't use it also that's kind of an expensive hand sanitizer but who am i to say that for sure
1: well uh, apparently people are buying a lot of hand sanitizer because uh uh, at least around my area they're they're all kind of sold out (laughs) so they're having a hard time keeping it in stock which I think is is strange, really, because you know the the best thing you can do is wash your hands with soap and water. I mean, <laughs> if you have soap and water, hand sanitizers are not the thing you should be using. But I wanted to talk about this suggestion uh, and these recipes going around online about whether you should make your own hand sanitizer. Like you were saying, there is a suggestion to use uh, vodka and aloe vera gel. Um, and then they also added essential oils for odor and tea tree oil for antibacteria.
0: Oh yeah, all those natural properties of the essential oils. <laughs>
1: right, right. But the bottom line is that these things, these things don't don't work. I mean, they're not so easy to make. Now, if you want to make a, an effective hand sanitizer, you need a. a at least a 60% alcohol concentration. And as you were saying, Tito's is 40, 45% or something like that. 40. Um, so, it, yeah, 40%. So you can't even make, even if you used, a, you know, just a, a glass of Tito's, that's not going to be suitable.
0: But you could drink the Tito's and sanitize <laughs> your gut.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, and there are there are other things like Everclear, I looked. that's uh, Everclear is like a <laughs> 90, 90% alcohol. You know, I suppose if, if you're going to go with something like that, uh, there's that. But hand sanitizers are over-the-counter drugs. And I don't recommend anybody make their own over-the-counter drugs at home. Just be, because there really is more to a hand sanitizer than just alcohol. You need those humectants in there that are going to hold the alcohol on your hands for at least a little bit longer to get that longer kill time. These things are just not simple to make. And this recipe that you've seen, I think it was either in either an allure or L where I saw the recipe. Uh, this is just not a recommended recipe. The bottom line for me is that people should wash their hands with soap and water and make sure you dry too. The drying part is important because what happens, soap and water, while it might not necessarily kill kill all viruses and all bacteria, it does help remove them from your hands and the drying piece is about removing it from your hands too. And the important part to prevent... Uh, infections is to remove things from your hands so you don't infect yourself.
0: Yeah, I think you have an excellent link to a CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control about handwashing. We could post that in the show notes.
1: Yeah. I wonder if those uh, people in that new podcast that you tipped me off will cover it. Uh, That's that... uh... Uh, This podcast will kill you. Oh, such a great podcast.
0: If yeah, yeah, it's one of the favorite ones that I'm listening to the errands. They're so wonderful uh, just to talk about disease and how it's impacted human history. And should you be worried about the disease today? And they actually do cover the coronavirus in episode 42.
1: Oh, really? I'll have to go back and listen. I listened to a few of them, but they do a good job. Keep up the good work makers of this podcast will kill you.
0: Yeah. Well, let's get to our beauty questions. Our first question comes from Helene on Instagram, and she asks, what are the best facial moisturizers for sensitive skin? Thanks. Love the podcast. And we love you for asking us a question. Sensitive skin is a lay term that people typically use to diagnose their own skin when it becomes easily irritated or people think it becomes irritated. Skin typically displays a reaction as a result of a reduced tolerance to environmental exposure, such as the sun or application of a cosmetic product. The challenges with using the terminology sensitive skin is that there isn't really a definition, and it's important you work with your dermatologist to identify which environmental factors are causing any redness, itchiness, dryness, rashes, or breakouts that you're experiencing. That being said, if your skin is reactive to cosmetic products, it's really important to pinpoint which type of ingredient is causing the sensitivity. We've mentioned on the podcast before that many fragrances, natural plant extracts, or certain preservatives can be irritating to the skin. And I don't want to forget the JAMA editorial that we talked about where doctors Rubin and Broad penned in 2019 to the world that dermatologists are seeing both irritant and allergic contact dermatitis and photosensitization from plant extracts and products.
1: Always uh, wary of those plant extracts on your skin.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: It really does amaze me how many people uh, suggest putting essential oils on your skin. And it just does not seem like a great idea to me.
0: No, that's one of the worst things you could do. So if you think you have sensitive skin and you're interested in finding the right product for you, I would first recommend looking for a moisturizer without fragrance and without plant extracts. And I would avoid one with too many actives that can cause the skin to react. In this case, when you have sensitive skin, less is absolutely more. I would also recommend for you to read the book Beyond Soap by Dr. Sandy Scott Scottnicki. She is a dermatologist out of Toronto, and she has a product elimination diet that can help you determine what your skin is reacting to, and she's found it to be pretty effective with her patients. They also have a podcast. I thought the book was excellent, and I think if you are interested in learning about dermatology and what types of ingredients can cause skin to react I highly recommend this book and if you're also in doubt with your own skin I highly recommend contacting your dermatologist
1: you know it really does amaze me how many brands and especially I see this with the the clean beauty brands how many of them have dozens of extracts in their products and I was always of the opinion that the fewer different chemicals you can put in your products is really the safer for consumers because the more different chemicals you're putting into your products, the more chances are going to be that you're going to have some reaction to some material in there.
0: Yeah. And fragrances and botanical extracts are really complex blends, essential oils. I mean, it seems really simple. Oh, it's this pure oil coming out of a plant. They really are complex at the molecular level and when you're speaking about your skin, I really believe less is more. I know you have a less is more formulation mentality. Less is more.
1: Yeah. And and when you say they're complex mixtures, essentially that means that they're made up of a whole bunch of different chemicals, like dozens of chemicals. There's That's the thing about when you, when you see a synthetic chemical like sodium lauryl sulfate, it's pretty much mostly just that molecule, sodium it's lauryl sulfate. It's pretty pure. Yeah. Yeah when you see something like a tea tree oil well that could be 20 different chemicals maybe 30 i i don't know the exact thing but there's terpenes and there's other uh, fatty acids and there's all kinds of chemicals in there and you just don't know what there are so the more of those types of natural extracts that you're having the higher the chance that you could have some sort of reaction so it's good advice to avoid those things yeah all right, I'm up for the next question. Uh, if, if I had an English accent, I might read this in an English accent because it comes from England.
0: Hello. <laughs> I won't attempt it.
1: <laughs> Hi, Valerie and Perry. Love your podcast. I am an avid listener, and you both have taught me so much. My hair and skin have never felt or looked better. I have a question I wanted to ask. I travel a lot, and being a minimalist packer, I only ever bring a backpack with me when I board the plane, which makes me try and minimize the liquids I take with me. I'm currently using the CeraVe SA cleanser for my face and body, and was wondering whether I can use that as a shampoo replacement as well when I travel, only for a short term. Is there a huge difference between cleansers for the face, body, and hair in general, or is that just marketing? Lots of love from England, Sally.
0: Oh, thanks, Sally. Yeah,
1: that's a nice question, and it's, it's an interesting one, too. I took the liberty of looking up that CeraVe cleanser, but I think, as you suspect, cleansers and shampoos and body washes do contain a lot of the same in, types of ingredients, and pr- the, primarily they're going to be made up of water as the main solvent. And then some percentage is going to be detergents. In the case of this uh, CeraVe product, their main detergents are cocomitopropylhydroxysultane and sodium lauryl sarcosinate. So they have those. They also have a few other secondary surfactants that are going to affect the foaming and the foaming feel. But as you suspected, this this product is a, a full of detergents in the same way that a shampoo is. So it's my estimation based on these ingredients that there's really isn't that much of a problem if you're gonna use it a few times for a shampoo. Um, I'm just trying to look through here to see if there are any red flag ingredients for hair, and it doesn't really look like it. It's just, at, at the most, you're going to probably have more than you really need there's the uh, hyaluronic acid that is probably just going to get washed away along with the cholesterol there is a corn oil in the formula so it might not clean your hair as well as you'd want a shampoo to but when you're traveling and you're in a pinch you know i wouldn't say that this is uh this is a terrible shampoo it's certainly better than using bar soap (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, as Perry said, definitely if you're using it for a couple of days, I think you can get away with it. Typically, when you formulate a product, if you're saying, hey, can I use this rinse off product for leave on, I would have a little more concern because when you formulate a product for rinse off, you can use certain things that you just wouldn't use in leave on. But you're saying, hey, can I use this rinse-off product for my face and body on my hair? And while it probably won't be the world's greatest shampoo if your hair is really soiled, I think you could get away with it for sure. I think that's a really savvy thing to do. Uh, The one thing you wouldn't want to do is take something maybe that was a little pepperminty and tea tree-like and use it all over uh, your whole body, like my brother did when I told him that he could use shampoo <laughs> as body wash. Yeah, uh, there were certain places he put the uh, tea tree shampoo that he didn't like. But I think in this case, the Cerave SA cleanser is perfectly fine to use on your hair in a pinch.
1: You know, looking at this formula, it's interesting. They have both carbomer in there, and then they have xanthan gum too. It's, it's, it's
0: interesting simplest. combo. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, those yeah. are tough to put together. Yeah,
1: some, some straight, and then and then they're looking at their. Uh, Preservative system? Ah, well, I digress. (laughs) I think we've answered the question.
0: Yeah. Our next question comes to us from Canada. Hello, Beauty Brains. I listen to you guys and love your podcast. I had a question about thinning hair and the power behind castor oil being able to thicken and grow hair. Is this scientifically proven? And if so, what does the research say? Lots of love from Vancouver, British Columbia.
1: Wow. Yeah. You know, people... People always want to know what can make my hair grow. (laughs) I wish there was better answers. It is a
0: common plight, and I wish there were better answers because I know that when you have uh, thicker, fuller-looking hair, you have tons of confidence, and I, I wish I had an easy answer. Castor oil, being able to thicken and grow hair, is a common perception that i hear about often and i haven't been able to find any merit behind it in peer reviewed scientific publications whatsoever at least in humans there was one 2008 study in the romanian pharmaceutical journal pharmacia which looked at the effect of lotions containing 35 percent and 40 percent castor oil on hair growth in rabbits yikes animal testing oh yeah (laughs) unfortunately there was no placebo lotion used in the study meaning they didn't test lotion without castor oil on the bunnies they only looked at lotions containing castor oil and the paper was full of grammatical errors i'm not sure if it's a reliable publication so I wouldn't rely on that paper at all. Um, Other than that, though, I didn't find any papers on hair growth. I did find lots of papers about castor oil and its derivatives and their ability to cause dermatitis on the skin. While this is more of a rare reaction, there are several publications in reputable journals with some perspective on its ability to cause uh, reactions, specifically uh, one under deodorants, others in lipsticks, etc., but nothing on hair growth.
1: This seems to be uh, an old old claim, though. Uh, I remember us writing about it way back in, uh, I think, like 2006 when we just first started the, the Beauty Brains. Is One of the first questions was asked about whether castor oil is going to make eyelashes grow longer. And even at that time, there was no evidence for that. So I, I, I wonder where this came from.
0: Yeah, it's probably uh, folklore or ancient tradition. Uh, that's yeah. how these things usually go. And we can post a link, by the way, to that 2006 blog article in the show notes. Now, I did find one paper that spoke about castor oil and hair on humans. Uh, but again, unfortunately, nothing to do with hair growth. It was how castor oil has been observed to cause the phenomenon of acute felting on hair. Felting is where the hair has the ability to dreadlock together, much like if you look at a piece of felt, all the wool uh, fibers are kind of mangled together to form this really strong fabric. Uh, felting can also happen on the hair.
1: Oh, so it has nothing to do with you touching your hair, though? Cause, cause, um, it can. Because now, uh, now, it's, now it's felt.
0: <laughs> oh gosh. But you, you can't. Anyway. Oh, Perry. Uh, so felting on the hair, uh, is a rare disorder of the scalp called Plica polonica, where the hair spontaneously turns into one giant matted dreadlock that resembles a bird's nest and can be as hard as a stone. More on that in one second. Um, so otherwise, why wasn't I able to find any scientific literature about castor oil being able to regrow hair if this myth perpetuates that castor oil is great for hair growth, specifically of the eyelashes or eyebrows that we mostly read about? Right. well, has around for
1: a while, yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: castor oil um, can be used... As a laxative, uh, but it's extracted from the seeds of the plant Racinus communis. It's really rich in racinolaic monounsaturated fatty acids, and it can act as a humectant and moisturizer. And if you've ever seen castor oil and you look at it, it's extremely viscous, meaning it's extremely thick. It's a very sticky oil, and it probably does offer a lot of shine to the hair. I have used castor oil in styling products and in conditioners before, but not at very high levels because a little sure does go a long way. Certain cultures do use castor oil to lubricate the hair shaft, much like argan oil or jojoba oil is purported to be used on hair in certain cultures. And I do know that when the hair is lubricated, you can have a reduction in breakage. And when you have a reduction in breakage, it gives the illusion that hair is growing. So maybe in that perspective, I can see why people think castor oil helps hair grow.
1: You know, uh, castor oil must have been used for something. I remember watching uh, cartoons in my youth. And they always said, like, it was a big deal, like, kids would have to drink castor oil or something. So it must have been some health thing.
0: It's a laxative, yeah. Oh. You can still get at the store today in the laxative department. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) I don't recommend it unless you really need it. But going back to the acute felting incident on hair that I talked about, where that hair uh, basically turned into one big dreadlock, I did find... Uh, One scientific paper in the International Journal of Trichology in 2017, where they documented a case study on a woman who had this huge, basically bird's nest uh, of a hair, where she had applied a mixture of castor oil and coconut to her hair, and instantaneously, um, she got this big snarl, and her hair had to be cut off.
1: Really? Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In certain hair conditions, I think you can have this perfect storm going on where you have damage on your hair fiber, maybe other debris or let's say soap scum on your hair fiber, and then you put castor oil on top of it, and you're ruffling your fibers over one another to work the castor oil into the hair and castor oil sticky, and then all of a sudden your fibers are crossing over one another and getting snarled. And then you have this big felted mess. And unfortunately, it's impossible to undo felted hair. Once you get it, you have to cut the hair off. And again, it's a very rare phenomenon. I think um, they said less than 20 cases were reported worldwide one year. And I will say that, although it is rare, I did have one person on Instagram message me with a photograph of one of their guests uh, and the felting had occurred. Oh. And they were like, I don't know what happened. The hair just all of a sudden did that. And for that to happen, you really have to have this, I, I call it a perfect storm, but the hair has to be incredibly damaged. There has to be a product on the hair that when the hair rubs over one another, it just gets stuck. And when you're massaging the oil into your hair, you're just going to get this big, uh, felted mess. So I don't think a lot of people have to worry about that. I think castor oil is probably fine to put over your hair. I don't think it's going to help your hair grow. I would probably choose a less sticky oil personally, if I were going to apply an oil on my hair, uh, to help reduce the breakage, which I think will help give you the perception of hair growth.
1: And just to clarify, if you do experience felting, you shouldn't use your facial cleanser to clean your hair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, you should use scissors, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, looks like you've got time for one more. This is an audio question.
0: Ooh.
2: Hi, beauty brains. My name is Melissa, and I am a huge fan of the show. Um, I am an esthetician. I work uh, specifically in acne treatment, love my job. Um, we have a private label um, product line and we go through various labs, depending on you know what product we need. And we even have one lab we go through um, to help us formulate our own products. Now, oftentimes the chemist will say, you guys, your idea is crazy, I can't formulate that, um, which I always find very fun uh, to hear about. Um, But it got me thinking, you know, what if I went back to school to become a cosmetic chemist and have that be sort of like my next evolution of my career? Um, The only thing I'm a little scared of is the amount of schooling I need to do to get there. Um, Things like calculus, obviously I'm not excited about. So um, any insight on like the pathway to become a cosmetic chemist? how long it takes, um, where are the best programs would be so beneficial to hear about. Thank you so much. And again, I'm a huge fan.
1: All right. Well, thanks for that question. Becoming a cosmetic chemist. Valerie, does anybody ever set out to become a cosmetic chemist when they're in college?
0: You know, I've met a couple people. I actually have a chemist that works for me that in college heard about the industry and she knew she wanted to work on it. I think that's far and few in between, um, honestly.
1: Yeah, I, I I didn't even occur to me that there was a thing called the cosmetic industry. I was just going through college. I got a degree in chemistry. And then in my senior year, I started looking for jobs. And there was the cosmetic industry. I'm like, yay, I'm going to make shampoo for my...
0: <laughs> I had the same reaction. I was like, wait a second. I can get paid to make lipstick? Sold.
1: See, I was I was more reticent about it myself. I thought, hey, I went through all of this college, and I'm just going to make shampoo for the rest of my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it turned out to be a pretty good career, right? Oh no,
1: I, I loved it. It's you know, back when you're when you're in your early twenties, you think you're going to cure cancer and change the world. But you know, it, people cosmetics make people happy, so <laughs> it's a it's a good job. Yeah. So how do you become a cosmetic chemist? Well, Melissa says she's an esthetician, and she's thinking of going back, and how do you become a cosmetic chemist? Well, if you've already started your career, the reality is if you want to be a formulating chemist in the cosmetic industry, there's really no substitute for getting a degree either in chemistry or chemical engineering, You could also get a degree in biology. There there are some people who have biology degrees that are formulators in the industry, but the vast majority of people who have jobs either have chemistry or chemical engineering degrees.
0: Yeah, I think it really depends what you want to do. If you're an esthetician and you're looking to make your own products, I do not recommend going back to college because... Why, right? There are a lot of online resources that you can use. I'm actually launching an online resource in the summer. Oh, so that learn be to, Yeah, learn how to make their own products. I think there's a lot of value in that. Now, if you were saying, Perry and Valerie, I'm an esthetician and I want to go work for a skincare brand and be a formulator you absolutely have to go back to college, get a degree in a hard science, and then start at the bottom learning how to formulate. Uh, If you're just learning to make products for yourself, I don't think a four-year degree is necessary, but it will help you to have some know-how and to get some science fundamentals under your belt.
1: You're right. One of the things that a lot of people that contact me and they say, oh, I want to learn how to make cosmetics because I want to start my own line. Well, if starting your own cosmetic line is really what your goal is, I don't think you becoming the expert on how to make the products is really the most important thing. If, if making your own line and, and selling beauty products, is, that's a different skill set than actually making the product. You can hire a contract manufacturer and you can work with them uh, to sort of specify the characteristics of your products and such like that. But you don't have to become a cosmetic chemist if all you want to do is start your own line.
0: Yeah, so I guess it depends what your goals are.
1: Now, there are a few programs in the U.S. that are specifically for cosmetic chemistry. Most colleges don't have a focus on it, but on an undergraduate level, there is the University of Toledo. They have a program for cosmetic science undergrad. And on both an undergraduate and graduate level, there's the University of Cincinnati, There are a few others like Fairlake Dickinson has a a, a graduate program. Um, I actually wrote a whole blog post that lists them all, and I'm going to include a link to that in the show notes. I think what you're really going to find, though, that when you learn how to formulate or about cosmetic science is that you're going to become more like those chemists that you talked about because you're going to learn uh, what the limits are of what can be done. We chemists don't really want to be the wet blankets and say no, that you can't do anything or do what the marketing people want, but we also need the marketing people to be realistic and to focus on making products that actually do what they say they're going to do. And the reality is, is that technology is not very advanced in the cosmetic realm you know, as we said earlier, it would be great if there was something that could make hair grow and scientists continue to look for something. Just the reality is we haven't found anything. And so that's, I think, when you learn more about cosmetic chemistry and formulating, you learn a lot more about the limits of what can really be done. Overall, it's a a fun job. You get to invent stuff. You get to experiment with products that Generally, are not going to kill you. <laughs> uh, you don't really, when as a formulator, you don't really work with dangerous levels of of ingredients. I think the most dangerous thing that I worked with was uh, what sodium hydroxide or hydrochloric acid, and those are just used. You're using drop levels of that stuff. So um, as as that goes, it's it's not like a a scary dangerous chemical job. I know there's some of these organic chemists who. Are mixing together, you know, reagents that (laughs) are really scary stuff. Um, But in the cosmetic industry, you're mixing together things that have to be safe for human skin. And so it's generally a, a, a safe occupation as far as chemists go.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. My passion is really looking at the ingredients and understanding what's special about every ingredient and learning where it came from and how it was synthesized and That's really the beauty in it for me. I think that there is something for everyone in the industry, whether you are actually formulating your own products on the bench, or as Perry said, maybe your skill set is best used in creating the brand and having someone else make the products, but still being involved in that. So again, do you have to go back to school? It depends where you want to work. If you want to make products for yourself, I don't think so.
1: Yeah, I think we're in agreement there. And uh, we both love being cosmetic chemists
0: yay all right well that brings us to the end of this show thank you so much for listening
1: if you get a chance go over to iTunes and leave us a review over there that's going to help keep us motivated and happy, but also help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions. Incidentally, if you have a question, feel free to record it on your smartphone, and then you can email that to us at thebeautybrains@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We also take the text-written ones, but uh, we'd love to have it, uh, the, the audio versions.
0: We do love to answer those audio questions and don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts on Instagram. We're at the beauty brains, 2018 on Twitter. We're at the beauty brains and we have a Facebook page. We
1: also have a Patreon page. Uh, if you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. This will help keep the show ad free and is the best way to keep a financial bias out of the show. And you don't have to uh, skip forward in the podcast like i always do on podcast commercials uh so if you like what we do and you want to see us keep doing it go to patreon.com slash the and subscribe
0: thanks again for listening and remember be brainy about your beauty
1: thanks everyone <laughs> Kittens.